0: Horrific Tales. In this show, we like to celebrate the creations of independent authors and aspiring writers. Please like, subscribe, and share these videos to help get our friends as much exposure as possible. We would also appreciate it if you could support our friends by following them on their independent platforms and by purchasing their works. Details on how to do so will be in the show notes. In this episode, we ask the question, what really is going on with old man curling in the Vanek house? Please join us now as we present to you White Harbor by Carlos Riviera. The most merciful thing in the world, I think, is the inability of the human mind to correlate all its contents. We live on a placid island of ignorance, in the midst of black seas of infinity, and it was not meant that we should voyage far. The sciences, each straining in its own direction, have hitherto harmed us little, but someday the piecing together of disassociated knowledge will open up such terrifying vistas of reality and of our frightful position therein, that we shall either go mad from the revelation or flee from the deadly light into the peace and safety of a new dark age. H.P. Lovecraft, The Call of Cthulhu Chapter 1. Coming Home 1. Blight Harbor Everyone in town had a story about the house at the foot of the hill. The Wooden House. The Vanek House, as it was known, although no one with the last name Vanek had lived in the town of White Harbor for over a hundred years. It stood on the corner of Graham Street and Hill Road, where the latter began its winding climb toward the densely wooded mountains. The building itself was two stories high and unpainted. Every window boarded up, giving the house the monolithic appearance of a tombstone surrounded by knee-high fescue grass. It was built on pilings, from back when Atenea Creek used to overflow during the rainy months, of which there were plenty every year. The creek, now nothing but an apologetic, stony gutter a child could hop over, served as the western edge of the property, from which the covered windows on the upper floor resembled lidded eyes, which, if ever opened, would gaze down upon the rest of White Harbor in silent, eldritch judgment. On the first floor, The house had a set of double doors, held shut with a rusty chain and a large padlock, and the narrow porch and the wooden steps going up from the front lawn were slanted and broken. Large splinters of brown, black, and green, with white splotches of mold throughout, stuck upward, like teeth in a jagged underbite. It was the type of house that lent itself to tales. Tall tales? Perhaps some. Others? Not so much. For everything the mind could imagine happening within the house's walls, there would be someone in White Harbor that would attest to it as an undeniable fact. From poltergeist, to mass suicides, to evil cults, to concealing the very gates of hell in one of its rooms, there was nothing too outrageous for which the Vanek house had supposedly been the site, the witness, or sometimes even the perpetrator. Some events were recorded facts, those were the rarities, Such as the grisly deaths of a family who had rented the house from its landlord, a man who had never once in his life rented the property. The family, known as the Albrights, seemed personable enough and had claimed to want to remodel the Vanek House to eventually turn it into a bed and breakfast. The odd thing, however, was that there had never been any sign of remodeling or any work actually being done on the property, which struck the neighbors as bizarre. One night in the summer of 1968. According to police reports, the father, Jonathan Albright, had stabbed and killed his wife, Penny, his seven-year-old daughter, Sadie, and his one-year-old son, Nelson. Each of them, he had stabbed a total of 44 times. Jonathan Albright had been found dead, sitting at his dining room table, with the knife driven through the upper left quarter of his body, straight into his heart. The most horrifying finding of all during the autopsy had been that, before committing suicide, Mr. Albright had carefully cut out and eaten pieces of his wife and children. A total of 44 distinct pieces had been recovered from his stomach, swallowed whole without chewing. The tip of his own middle finger had also been cut and swallowed whole. To this day, no explanation has been found as to what the significance of the number 44 had been for Jonathan Albright, or why the distal phalange of his middle finger had also been cut and eaten, but it ultimately didn't matter. There were clear victims and a clear perpetrator. Case closed. Events like the 1968 murder-suicide were facts, but they were not the only truth as far as the denizens of White Harbor were concerned. There were also the known facts, the accepted facts, the local truth, the ones that had no evidence to them, but which the townsfolk plainly agreed were true. Such was the case of Gerardo Valencia, a 12-year-old boy that had gone missing for six days during the winter of 1989 when a rare blizzard had struck the town. The trail had led the police to the Vanik house, where they had found Gerardo's corpse. A police officer had taken a polaroid of the boy's frozen face and had enacted the poor sense of showing it to some of his drinking buddies. Soon, it was known to the whole town that Gerardo Valencia hadn't died of starvation, dehydration, or even hypothermia, which would have been the likeliest culprit. Soon, everyone knew that the boy had died screaming. His eyes frozen open, bulging like white marbles, staring in stark terror at whatever had caused his heart to stop. His mouth twisted in a scream, so inhuman that it had dislocated his jaw open. The autopsy report confirmed that the boy had died of sudden heart failure, and three of the boy's fingernails had come detached from his fingers as he had attempted to claw at the floor in desperation, as if escaping from something that had been dragging him by his legs. But other than that, the boy's body had been intact, no signs of violence or sexual assault. There had been no signs of another person having been in the house aside from the boy, no footprints in the dust other than his, and no signs of the murder scene being wiped down, as the house had been evenly covered in dust and cobwebs, save for the drag marks leading to where the body had been found. There had never been an official explanation for what Gerardo had gone through within the walls of the house. And no arrests had been made but the people of white harbor knew or at least had a fairly good idea of what had happened the town consensus had been that whatever nameless evil lived in the vanik house had sent a blizzard over the town which had made the poor teenager wander off from school on the way home to seek refuge there where it had tortured and scared the boy to death while the howl of the wind muffled his screams as for who had let the boy inside the house it was also a known truth even if the police found no evidence of it. This tactic understanding of events, known only to those who were from town, had developed a name over the decades. It was something similar to A Collective Mind, an ever-growing compilation of folk tales, gossip, rumors, nightmares, fears, superstitions, and yes, accepted truths, that the locals referred to as Blight Harbor. No one ever lived too long in White Harbor before experiencing Blight Harbor. It was the way you knew you were officially from town. If you have ever taken a shortcut in a city you thought you were familiar with and then suddenly realize you've taken a wrong turn, you know what Blight Harbor is. The people and the buildings and the cars and the noise and the glowing signs that you thought had only been but a block away now seem miles behind you. And you find yourself on a dark, strange street with cracked asphalt and clogged gutters. Surrounded by old, abandoned buildings covered in graffiti and faded unreadable street posters, you are assaulted by a smell of garbage and urine as you gaze in fear at shadowy alleys. Just on the other side of the street, where drunks piss, hobos sleep, and greedy, unseen eyes stare back at you. That sudden feeling of unease, of disorientation, is the very essence of Blight Harbor. Blight Harbor is in the open space in your house that you can never turn your back to because you feel something in the emptiness is watching you. Blight Harbor is in the neighbors gossip that got another neighbor to move out of town entirely. Blight Harbor is in the muffled sound of the man in the apartment next door beating his wife while you turn up your TV's volume. Blight Harbor is in the way you bring your hand up to your mouth to conceal a grin when you hear your coworker did not get a promotion even though you weren't even competing with him. Blight Harbor is in the happy, hello, from a neighbor's mentally challenged son, whom you had always found so charming and full of joy, until the day you saw him standing in his backyard, masturbating. Blight Harbor is in the sound of a running shower the matched the sobs of a beautiful woman that no one else is aware feels utterly alone. Blight Harbor is in the handshake of that elementary school teacher that you know and talk to And have even had over for dinner along with his wife. But, you know, before he moved to town, he'd been accused of funneling a young boy and maybe, just maybe, managed to get off on a technicality. After all, his wife didn't leave him, did she? That's in Blight Harbor, the locals will say flippantly at times, fearfully at others, when a topic would be best brought to an end because it belongs to the dark chest of misery where evering the harborites wish to keep hidden or forgotten gets tossed into. One might make the mistake of thinking there is no such thing as Blight Harbor, that this is simply a local name for something that exists in every town in the world. While these things certainly can happen anywhere else, in White Harbor, they have substance. They are an entity. They are the town's living, bleeding heart, something as ethereal, but as tangible as a light drizzle. Blight Harbor is like the small particles of engine exhaust carried by the seemingly clean mountain air that fills the lungs of every single one of the town's little over 4,000 residents, both keeping them alive and slowly promoting the growth of cancer cells. No place in the town's history had ever been the physical embodiment of Blight Harbor quite like the Vanek House. 2. 1991 There was a tall concrete wall to the south of the Vanek property, erected by the owners of the house next door, a well-to-do, or so they liked the rest of the town to think, married a couple named Elijah and Maria Knox. The latter, being a realtor, knew the importance of location, 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 but had ironically been cursed with inheriting her mother's home in what was literally the worst piece of residential real estate in the entire town of White Harbor. This was torture to Maria Knox, who was more than aware that the very sight of the Vannick House could lower their property value, the way rot on a tomato could spread to all other tomatoes in the box, and so up the wall had gone, with another wall adjacent to it to block the view of the other spoiled tomato nearby, a house immediately up the hill from the Vanek house. That other tomato, unfortunately, had a worm in it, a worm named Van Kurling. Ben Curling. Ben Curling's house was, simply put, an ugly one-story wooden box with a grey shingle roof and almost as old and moldy as the Vanek Place. In fact, it had been part of the Vanek Estate in the past, until it had been segregated into two plats. Two plats which, to the Knox's chagrin, placed their pretty little Cape Cod-style home in a veritable checkmate of ugliness, as Curling's creepy forest of a backyard was twice as long as Vanek property itself, stretching across the entire eastern line of the Knox's estate. Unlike the Vanek House, Hurlings had gone through the rare fix here and there to make it at least inhabitable, but no care had been given to these fixes to make them blend in with the original building, neither in material nor color, and so the result had been a patchwork of boards, planks, covers, and panels that made the whole place look like a bunker built by a scavenger. And that was only what was visible of the property, as more than half was camouflaged in bushes, trees, and vines, the latter of which crawled up the walls and over fences, reaching toward the shingles in the roof like dark tentacles rising from the depths, wasting away and drying up as they climbed, starving for the touch of sunlight, but being burnt by it instead. However, even as the very existence of the Vanek House and Curling Houses gradually deteriorated the Knox’s property like a pernicious blind, it was the man himself and the infamy attached to him that actively ate away at it. If Maria had been busted with a cocaine lab in the house's garage, it couldn't have done the damage to their estate that Ben Curling's name alone did. They had repeatedly tried to sell the property and move, but no one would touch it. Even people from outside, who knew nothing of the Vanek Place or Ben Curling, needed only to gaze at the unpleasant looking old man, sitting on his porch with his two large black dogs, and they would give their house a wide berth. There might as well have been a sign at the town entrance that read, "'Thank you for visiting White Harbor. P.S. The Knox house is radioactive. One day, I made up my mind and went to talk to that man. Maria Knox had said to her sister over afternoon tea, "It was a custom she felt was oh so European and bourgeois." Despite serving the tea in a cheap tea set she had bought at Green's, a five dollars and under store downtown. I walked up to his front lawn. I didn't want to get too close, you know. He has those big black dogs with him at all times. Mastiffs, I think they're called. Mean creatures. Nothing like my little Dotty here. She caressed a tiny Pomeranian sitting on her lap, its tongue sticking out sideways, as if its snout was too small to contain the stupid-looking thing. I only wanted to ask him to please trim the bushes and the trees a little, and to cut those creepy vines he lets grow all over the place. They ugly up the neighborhood, and I can see them all day from the kitchen. They crawl over our fence, and if you rip them out, they leave root marks on the paint. Also, he owns that other house, you know, the vanek house? Well, he never mows that lawn either. I can imagine what vermin must be crawling all over that grass. It's unsanitary. Do you know what I found digging through my trash the other day? Not one, but three. Three raccoons. Those things carry diseases, Wilma. Diseases. She stared into her sister Wilma's eyes desperate to sense that someone understood and empathized with her ordeal. Wilma simply bit her lower lip, uncomfortably. I have three children here, for Christ's sakes. Caesar is already a teenager, don't get me wrong, I know he's a good boy and all, but he's so handsome. What if some floozy from school decides the shrubs beyond the wall, are a good make out spot and lures him there? He could be bitten by a snake! Wilma's eyes inadvertently glanced sideways at a framed picture on a corner table. Her sister's three children grinned back at her. Paula, a cute two-year-old, Randall, a skinny nine-year-old, and Caesar, a twelve-year-old with bright red pimples on his greasy face, insipid facial hair, crooked teeth, gigantic gums, and some undeniable signs of teenage obesity. "'Randall!' Maria said, startling Wilma back from her distraction. That boy keeps going in there all the time to catch bugs for his collection. He's a curious boy, and so smart, a scientist through and through. I think he'll be a biologist like his father. No, a doctor in biology. That's why no matter how many times I tell him not to go there, he's always sneaking and crawling around that place like a homeless person. Crawling, Wilma. Crawling on rat droppings and god knows what else. Wilma took in a breath, looking like she felt she should say something. But maria was already in the middle of her tirade and she would not be interrupted and my widow powie wowie she took in a deep breath as if summoning the strength to bring forth a traumatic memory so horrible it made her doubt the existence of a loving god my baby my beautiful beautiful baby the other day i saw her eating something off the floor and i know what you're gonna say wilma so stop it right there wilma looked confused she wasn't gonna say anything I know that it's normal for babies just to grab whatever off the floor and put it in their mouths. But one thing is like a shoe or a toy. It's an entirely different thing when... She choked a sob. Oh my lord. I tried to get it out of her mouth. I stuck my fingers in there and pulled out a... You wouldn't believe what it was. Guess what it was, Wilma. Wilma opened and closed her mouth like a fish, unblinking, not sure what to say. Guess. Wilma opened her mouth to speak. A cockroach!" Maria shouted before a word could leave Wilma's lips. My baby girl was eating a dead cockroach off the floor. She wrinkled her nose, raising her upper lip so her two chiclet white front teeth showed. She closed her eyes and furrowed her brow, shaking one of her hands quickly in front of her face and shaking her head in a gesture of disgust. Dotty, the stupid looking Pomeranian with the stupid looking tongue, looked up at her mom who is currently looking stupid. Maria picked up her cheap teacup, brought it to her lips, blew softly on the tea, took a very small sip, swallowed it, then blew out a bit of hot air, trying to regain her composure. She then shook her head. No, of course, that one sip of tea hadn't been enough to calm her down. How could it? Her eyes went perfectly round, and her eyebrows curved upward, trying to convey the greatest horror imaginable, and so she resumed. We might end up with a bubonic plague here in White Harbor, and Ground Zero will be that house, that monstrosity. Would it hurt that man to take a bit of care of it? It's his property, and it's harming ours. She took a moment to compose herself and have another hot sip of tea. So, as I was saying before, I went to that place, to his place. I was trying to be a good neighbor, to offer an olive branch, so to speak. I asked him, I begged him. Please, Mr. Kerlin, oh please, trim your bushes, please cut those vines, please take care of that lawn. And you know what that godless troglodyte said? Her eyes were now perfect circles, half-spears bulging out of a face to be found in encyclopedias next to the word indignation from that day forth. She leaned forward, looked directly into her sister's eyes, and whispered, Nothing. She paused for emphasis, letting the horror sink in, then repeated, nothing. He wouldn't even talk to me. He only glared at me with those big eyes in that black face of his. Wilma stifled a gasp. Maria caught herself, cleared her throat. Not that him being black is what makes him bad, of course. I'm not one of those races. I'm happy people like him can own a property that big. I mean, look at it. It's three times the size of ours. But I'm not lying to you, Wilma. The moment he glared at me, both of his dogs, at once, raised their heads like black sphinxes, with the horns and all. Unbeknownst to her, Wilma had just repressed an almost inhuman urge to interrupt her, and explain that yes, she was in fact being racist. And no, sphinxes do not, in fact, have horns. Those are devil dogs, Wilma. If I have ever seen a devil dog. They began growling at me. Like he had told them to like he had used his mind to tell them to growl at me and scare me away she petted dotty now somewhat frantically perhaps a bit too hard and the pomeranian let out a single helpless whine. i turned around and hurried away and i swear i never want to see those eyes again wilma that man's eyes are not human i've had nightmares about those eyes nightmares how is that man allowed to be free We all know what happened to that Hispanic boy two years ago during that blizzard. Who do you think let him into the house? Who has the only key to that padlock? Who locked that poor boy in there with the whatever lives in there? He did. Old man Curling did. Drove the boy's mother crazy with grief. She exhaled long and deep. Anyway, that's in Blight Harbor. Let's leave it there. In a way, Maria Knox had been expressing what many of White Harbor's residents thought of Old Man Curling, but, like her, only dared speak in the privacy of their homes or in small social gatherings. There was a preternatural aura about the man that he didn't seem to be in any hurry to dispel. Ben Curling was an enigma. He invited rumors by the very fact of existing. He was a man whose age no one seemed to agree upon. Some people in their 50s swore he'd been just as old when they were children as he was now, while others seemed to remember a young boy named Ben Curling, living in the house around the same time. If true, this boy would have most likely been homeschooled, since none of the adults remembered attending school with him. Another theory claimed that his asocial demeanor pointed to a lack of education, or even mental retardation, but he had often been seen reading on his porch, which to others spoke of a cunning and educated man. The Curlings, of which now he was the only known descendant, hadn't been famous for interacting with others for as long as anyone could remember. This had only fueled the flames of speculation, as nothing was really known about the family. More accurately, perhaps, everyone might have been holding a piece of the puzzle, but there had never been enough pieces in one place, at one time, to put the entire picture together. Curling spent his time sitting on his rocking chair, out on his front porch, all day, every day, like a bench statue in a park, surrounded by the thick vegetation that enveloped his property. He sat. He watched. He never spoke. Sometimes there would be a book in his hands, sometimes a plate of food, or a drink, which nobody ever saw him stand up to get. The books he was often seen reading were another topic of discussion. Neighbors claimed to have seen him reading everything, from Bram Stoker's Dracula, to Of Love and Shadows, to the Satanic Bible, to the Necronomicon itself human skin binding metal clasps and all then there was Tiberius Baker who said he'd once seen him reading the hobbit an old man curling had apparently been holding it upside down which meant he was only pretending to read because the man was illiterate all the while as people talked ben curling went on his routine all the while as people talked ben curling went on with his routine he sat he watched he never spoke only That wasn't always true. He buys his food at the market, Mia Elliott had once told Libby Grant, as if she were saying, I saw Goody Proctor with the devil. She had licked her lips and spoken into the phone, savoring the gossip like a delicious chocolate truffle. You wouldn't believe it, huh? He does sometimes leave that house to get stuff. He comes in really early, as soon as they open, so there are fewer people there. I've seen him studying a tomato before putting it in his bag very closely, sort of transfixed, like he was looking at a human heart. And I know what you're thinking. How the hell does someone look at a human heart? Well, I don't know. I'm not a psychopath. But that's the feeling I got from the way he was staring at it. And I'm telling you, Libby, that man looked hungry. Like he thought that tomato would taste like human flesh and blood if he bit into it. Well, as long as he's eating a tomato and not an actual human heart, I can rest easy. But who the hell knows, right? He gives me the creeps, that man. He doesn't just go to the market, Luby Grant responded. Benny saw him at the hardware store too, she admitted, then a trembling exaltation that turned into a thin moan. To think that my Benny shares a name with that cool. He says the time old man currently came in. He just picked up what he was going to buy off the aisles, then plopped it right in front of Benny on the counter. Didn't even say hello, he just sort of crumbled. How much? then stood there waiting for Benny to ring him up. Then, he just paid with cash and left. He bought a drill bit and some nails. Oh, oh, and some, what do you call them? Some wire strippers. Wire stripper pliers. Can you imagine what that man is doing with those things? People talked, as people do. Stories of Ben Curling making a special guest appearance in the town were as rare as Bigfoot sightings, and for many, they held just as much truth to them. However, the sight of Ben Curling sitting on his porch, his two black mastiffs at his feet, was one every single person in White Harbor was familiar with. He sat, he watched, he never spoke. There's this fish on the east coast, Elijah Knox had once said while sitting at the counter at Chuck Callahan's bar, his friends, Neil Parham and Jerry Lucas, paying close attention. Knox had downed four beers already and was holding the almost empty fourth bottle by the neck, spinning it, making a tiny bit of liquid at the bottom dance in circles. The Northern Stargazer, this fish is called. Harmless sounding name. This thing buries itself in the sand almost completely, all except for its face. And let me tell you what a face it is. Ugly little fucker. You see a patch of sand, then you kind of do a double take when you see these vile, round, wall eyes staring up at you. And this mouth, like a downturned sickle moon filled with pointy teeth, stays there just waiting, unmoving, just staring, until some tiny fish whose luck just ran out, happens by. Then it rises up from the sand and gobbles it up in a single bite. Poor little fish doesn't know what hit it. At first, it's swimming happily, waving its little fins. He fanned his hands like fish's fins. Then BAM! Darkness. Complete darkness. Chuck Callahan, not even waiting for Knox to order his fifth beer, just put it on the counter in front of him. Knox put down the bottle he had been holding by the neck, grabbed the new one also by the neck, then took a long swig, to give himself a brief suspenseful pause before he got to the point that man in that house he said old man curling he added with disgust as if parham and lucas needed reminding that no night of drinking with elijah Knox was done without the obligatory old man curling tirade he sits in that goddamn rocking chair all day in that mess of trees and vines he calls a home he reminds me of that fish a fucking northern stargazer bulging eyes downturned mouth and all he took another swig of beer and then pointed the mouth of the bottle at Perim and Lucas. Mark my words, gentlemen. One day, some unlucky kid is going to pass too close to that house, and bam! He slapped the counter, startling both. Hey! Chuck Callahan turned to him with the warning. Sorry, Elijah said, turning his head toward Callahan, then turning in to his friends and spoke in an ominous voice. He's going to gobble that poor kid up. You'll see that man is a predator well i don't know about him being a predator jerry lucas the local veterinarian only two beers in and still composed and eloquent said he certainly doesn't strike me as friendly i would add unpleasant and downright misanthropic predator however might be too harsh a word those dogs of his though he saw his knocks and parham's eyes open wide in shock i know in normal circumstances i will never blame a dog for being aggressive i usually blame the owner and it's no different in this case mr curling and i'll call him that due to professional courtesy came in one day with his two dogs one of them seemed to present symptoms of food poisoning vomit anorexia lethargy lack of coordination you know usual stuff when a dog eats something it shouldn't have both of his friends nodded particularly elijah who had to medicate his wife's little ship Pomeranian on more than one occasion when it ate too much. Dog sick? Jerry continued, doing his best Ben Curling grumble impersonation. The dog didn't have a leash on, I should mention. It might have been sick, but it certainly didn't look it. It looked perfectly capable of lunging at someone if provoked. The dog just stared up at me. The other one did likewise. I know this will sound crazy, but it felt like those two dogs hated my guts. I mean, most dogs hate coming to the vet. Every vet knows that. They're scared, apprehensive, they whine, they tremble, they urinate, they refuse to move. I'm trained to deal with all of that. Even angry dogs, for sure. But these things, they hated me." He stared vacantly for a moment, swiveling his head slowly from one side to the other, replaying the memory to see if he had interpreted it wrong. Perhaps missed some key detail that would explain that strange feeling he had every time he remembered the instant. I asked Mr. Curling to put a leash on the dogs and he looked at me as if I had just insulted his mother. Then, in the most casual tone, he said, They won't bite anyone if I don't tell them to. They know I'll kill them if they do. I was at a loss for words. Maybe you were, but I think that's more words than the entire town has ever heard old man curling speak, Neil Parham said, red drunken cheeks and a silly grin on his face. Seriously, for his standards, that's downright loquacious. Maybe. He spoke with such confidence, like a man who knew he could say and do certain things without the need to apologize for them. Like he was owed the license to say or do what he wanted without question. Who knows, maybe he is owed that. After all the gossip and grief this town has given that man. Nothing he hasn't brought upon himself, Elisha said. Well, I know something you don't, Ellie, Jerry said, looking straight at his friend. When you're black, people look at you differently. Here, I'm the town's veterinarian. When I go to another town, I'm just another black man, getting those looks like they're wondering what store I stole the fancy clothes from. That's bullshit, interrupted Elijah. It has nothing to do with him being black. You know better. I know it doesn't help, Jerry said, giving his friend a meaningful look. All right, all right, keep going, Elijah said dismissively. I don't know why, Jerry Lucas said. I just felt too scared to push on a leash issue. He took another sip of beer. For God's sake, it's my clinic, it's protocol, and I'm still too terrified to follow it. I just caved in and told him to bring the dogs into the examining room. I turned to walk inside, took a few steps, then I heard Maeda from behind the reception desk utter this sudden, he admitted a loud gasp, and I turned around to see both dogs stalking me. He tried to imitate the posture of the canines, gesturing with his hands when his face or body couldn't. Head down, body tense, ears up, tail up. Then, I heard a growl, and I froze. In my mind, I saw the dog lunge at me, straight from my throat. But just before I had a chance to do it, Mr. Curling came up and kicked him. He kicked his own dog in its haunches, in front of a veterinarian. He drew in a deep breath, and I didn't move. I didn't reprimand him. I couldn't. The dog just moved aside, didn't even cry out when it was kicked. Mr. Curling looked up at me with even more scorn in his eyes if that was even possible, and he brought out leashes and collars from his jacket pocket and put them on the dogs. Lucas now took a generous chug of beer and swallowed audibly. Now, I know what I just said, I will never blame a dog for being aggressive, and I mean it. Mastiffs are usually nice family pets, and they're very gentle animals, but a mastiff that's not used to seeing other people, and not taught how to behave around strangers, can be quite aggressive. So which one is it then, Elijah Knox said. Once again, pointing at him with his beer. You said, In normal circumstances, you would never blame the dog. What do you mean by that? Jerry Lucas nodded. Again, I know what I said. I still wouldn't blame the dog. Not really. I've seen some angry dogs in my life. I've seen dogs trained to be aggressive, even trained to kill. I've seen abused dogs, terrified dogs, whose instinct is to bite if you so much as move. I've honestly never been afraid of a dog. But that stare that dog gave me after getting kicked. He bared his teeth in a fearful grin and took an air through them as he moved his head slowly in denial. That scared me. It really did. It was a blaming stare. Like it was saying, I won't forget that. But it wasn't just that. Oh really, Knox said. Well, he said in a high pitch, then followed the word with a tightening of the lips that expressed this was the part of the story he wasn't so keen on telling mainly because he couldn't find a rational way to explain it. Jerry removed his glasses, rubbed his eyes tiredly, then put his glasses back on. A few days later, maybe like a week later at most, during breakfast, Pauline told me she'd gotten up to make herself a cup of tea in the middle of the night. She has insomnia sometimes. The tea calms her nerves. Passionflower tea. You know how she suffers from anxiety, but the pills, uh, the pills make her feel weird. So, for a few months a year despite the doctor's recommendations she stops taking them as a way to cleanse she says he marked the words with air quotations and well passionflower tea it uh, contains this substance called chrysin, which is a flavonoid that helps calm anxiety and will you get on with the damn story jerome wolf game lucas demanded Knox banging again on the counter this time not inciting a hate from chuck but just annoyed sigh fine Okay, Jerome Wolfgang Lucas, who loathed his middle name, exclaimed. While she was waiting for the water to boil, Pauline said she peered out the window and thought she saw two dogs, black as night, sitting on the front lawn, panting and just staring at her house, fixed on it. She said she hadn't told me because she thought she had dreamed it. After all, they weren't acting as normal dogs would. They didn't look right, she said. She wasn't sure if it was just a reflection of the moonlight or some other source of light, but she was convinced that their eyes looked bright blue, like luminescent blue. This just added more to her thinking that she had dreamed this and had gotten all mixed up with the memory of her making tea that night. So she didn't think much of it. Only, I don't think she dreamed it. I didn't tell her what I was thinking as she was telling the story because I didn't want to scare her because of her anxiety, you know. You see, the morning after she supposedly seen the dogs, I had woken up and went out to get the newspaper and then the smell hit me like a punch. It was feces. Definitely feces. But sick smelling feces. Like when you've been constipated for three full days, and Taco Bell makes it all come out at once? said Neil Parham, earning a disgusted look from his friends. What? he said, shrugging, not quite grasping what he said that might deserve such a look. Thank you, Neil, Jerry said, for the lovely mental image. As I was saying, the smell hit me, so I turned to look at the source, and there they were two huge piles of dog excrement on our lawn looked like they'd been there all night they weren't fresh i look at dog feces for a living i knew that much they were several hours old and yet they smelled as if half-digested chunks of meat were stuck to them and had been rotting for days now who's the one providing the gross metal images neil said jerry looked at him with annoyance thinking rationally well dogs do have great sense of smell so they could have located my house, but I'm telling you, the more I think about it, the less sense it makes. It just doesn't. I live on the opposite end of town from Mr. Curlings. The dogs have never been at my house. I doubt that man even knows where I live to have pointed the dogs in my direction, and this is just something dogs do not do. They don't seek out a person's house out of an entire town to take a shit. Elijah and Neil started on account of how uncommon it was for their friend to use foul language on someone's front lawn out of spite and still he guzzled beer from the bottle hard as if seeking comfort as if he needed the liquid to push down a bite of bread stuck in his throat needed it as much as pauline his loving wife who he wished had never told him about the dogs she thought she had dreamed about sometimes needed passionflower tea to go to sleep still it unnerved me every time i went out for my evening jogs i kept stopping and looking back because i felt I just felt, a pair of vicious black dogs, as if they were real muscle and fur, with blue glowing eyes, stalking me, with their heads down, ears up, tail straight, and drooling for a bite out of me. Then, I imagine when they finally do catch me, and all the while, as they rip into my flesh down to the bone, I would be screaming and picturing that man's hateful stare when I told him to put the leashes on the dogs, but his face would turn into a grin, and it's him grinning, sitting on his porch. I would regret, as God is my witness, I would regret the moment I mentioned those goddamn leashes. Because now Pauline's a widow because I couldn't keep quiet about the damn leashes. And that man is grinning, grinning because he would have commanded his dogs to kill me. He would have commanded them to seek out the asshole vet who put a leash on his babies and eat him whole. Eat him whole but leave some recognizable parts. Some of his face or his left ring figure with the engraved ring still on it then dragged the carcass back to the asshole vet's front lawn and shit him out for his wife to find all that's left of him. Of me. Jerry went quiet all of a sudden. He proceeded to drink from his beer until his bottle was empty, then raised a hand and signaled for Truck to bring him another. That's in Blight Harbor, man, said Elijah, patting his friend on the back. Leave it there. The three men had continued to drink in silence. It would seem if one were to listen to those stories, only a handful of the many that were exchanged amongst the inhabitants of White Harbor, that they didn't so much talk about the Vanek House, but old man curling instead. But that would be incorrect, nothing but a superficial assumption. These people were, after all, adults. And adults, through the benefit or misfortune of having lived longer, inherently saw people the source of evil, not inanimate objects. Of course, adults can embrace superstitions, religious beliefs, abstractions, and magical thinking the devil made me do it it felt like i had stepped out of my body these shoes bring me bad luck at blackjack however the adult mind needs to find someone to blame an embodiment of evil a living breathing vessel for these superstitions beliefs and abstractions to act through and so the adults that talked about ben curling weren't really aware of the fact that talking about him was ultimately nearly the same as talking about the Vanek house Children, however, understood this distinction better. They were unburdened by harsh logic and could see the source of evil adults often overlooked. They could see the man and the perceived evil behind the man, like an invisible puppeteer. Because of this, the children's stories did talk about old man curling, but in relation to the Vanek house, almost as if he were an appendage of it. The moving arm on an action figure, not the mechanism which moved it children understood a little better. They recognized that whatever was wrong with Old Man Curling was inseparable from the Vanek house. Well, we hope you enjoyed our latest horrific tale. If you'd like to keep up to date, make sure you subscribe to our YouTube page. Also, follow us on our social media pages. You can also show your support for the channel by going to our merchandise store picking up some items there. Please also take a moment to support our contributing friends who kindly lend their talents to this show. Check out the links in the description as to how you can do this. Until next time, keep it creepy, keep it horrific.